What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Thursday, March 18th. I'm Akila Hughes. And I'm Gideon Resnick, and this is What a Day, the podcast that Natalie Portman played for Zach Braff in the iconic movie Garden State. Yeah, they dubbed over it with that song that's like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, but um, yeah, it's actually just the WAD show. Um. This explains our whole shins beef that we've had for so long. On today's show, we talked to immigration reporter Caitlin Dickerson about the situation at the border and where things go from here, then some headlines. But first, the latest. So obviously, whatever the motivation um, was for this guy, we, we know uh, that many of the victims, the majority of the victims were Asian. Um, we also know that this is an issue that's happening across the country. It is unacceptable. It is hateful. And it has to stop. That was Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms speaking in a news conference yesterday about the heinous attack on Tuesday night by a white man at three spas in the Atlanta area, which killed eight people, including six women of Asian descent. The shootings come at a moment of increasing harassment and hate crimes against the Asian American community. But let's start with what we know right now about the attack and the investigation. Yeah, so this is a moving story. We're recording at 10 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday night, and things could change by the time you hear this. But for now, this is what is confirmed. The gunman, a white 21-year-old named Robert Aaron Long, was charged with eight counts of murder on Wednesday and one count of aggravated assault. Police said that all but one of the victims were women, and South Korea's foreign ministry reportedly said that four were of Korean descent. The suspect reportedly claimed to police that he had a, quote, sexual addiction, that he had gone to the massage parlors before and that he was, quote, attempting to take out that temptation. And throughout the day, there were a lot of questions raised about how the police presented their information on this and whether authorities would say this was a hate crime or not. Yeah, this was definitely a major thing. So there was a bizarre remark that a deputy, Captain Jay Baker, made about the suspect's, quote, really bad day leading Mm -hmm. up to the attacks. Uh, what the fuck is the only response to that? Uh, Later, there was also reporting that Baker previously promoted an anti-Asian T-shirt on Facebook last year. Uh, But the Times reports that investigators are not taking long at his word about his motivations, but this is still in the early goings. I think it's also important to point out that the ascribed motive is separate and apart from the terror that this man created for the Atlanta community, women, and the AAPI community at large. President Biden said that he had been briefed on the attack by the attorney general and FBI. Here's what Biden had to say. And the investigation is ongoing, and the question of motivation is still to be determined. But whatever the motivation here, I know that Asian Americans are in very, uh, very concern because, as you know, I've been speaking about the brutality against Asian Americans. Uh, for the last couple months, and I think it's, uh, it is very, very troublesome. 
Yeah, so as we mentioned, the bigger context here is increasing violence and racism faced by Asian Americans recently. And there was a new report about that very thing released the very same day as this attack on Tuesday. Yeah, so here's the rundown. Violence against Asian Americans has been growing, but especially and exponentially in the past year. And while we can't know for sure, it certainly doesn't help that America's leader for the majority of the U.S.'s mishandling of the pandemic blamed China for the virus, calling it several inherently racist things besides COVID-19 that we're not going to repeat here. But in terms of that report that you mentioned, it was put out by a group called Stop AAPI Hate. They've been tracking hate crimes against Asian Americans, and they found almost 3,800 cases of harassment and violence against Asian Americans have been reported in the past 12 months. Another group that's been out front on this is the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, also known as NAPOF. Their executive director, Sung Yun Choi Moro, uh, was asked about the shooting and the questions around motivations. She said, quote, if you step back a little bit, pull back the curtains a bit and really understand the history of how this country has perceived and treated Asian American women, it won't be a surprise to come to the conclusion that there was some racialized motivation behind what happened. And if we're being honest, it's impossible to claim you haven't heard stereotypes that sexualize, fetishize, infantilize, and further marginalize Asian women. As a black person, I can't pretend that I'm not aware of the model minority stereotype that aims to pit black people against Asian people as if we're opposites in terms of achievement rather than people victimized differently by the same old white supremacy. And the stereotypes also work to erase and make vulnerable those who don't fit them. These women weren't affluent. They didn't necessarily graduate at the top of their class quietly from an Ivy League institution, but their lives matter just as much. And so I guess all of this is to say, pay attention to the ways white supremacy works to divide us and look out for each other. Protect each other. Speak up when casual racism occurs. We're living in a time when accountability is called cancel culture, but hold them accountable anyway. And for white people listening, please use the protection your skin often affords you to look out for the rest of us. None of this is easy, but it is literally life or death. A thousand percent. We'll include a few links to resources in our show notes about how to get involved or how to just take care of yourself through horrific news events like this. Definitely check them out. And we have an interview that we're going to get to. The timing was coincidental, but it feels really apt in terms of a larger discussion around America and who feels welcome here and who does not. So yesterday we talked a little bit about the surge of people arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. And today we wanted to go a little deeper on that with someone we've had on the show before who has been covering immigration for years. Caitlin Dickerson is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Here is our conversation. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us again. It's good to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So for context, you know, how does what's happening right now at the border compare historically? You know, have we seen surges like this in the past? And what's your sense of why it's happening now? So we have absolutely seen border surges like this in the past, and in particular surges of unaccompanied minors. The biggest um, in, in history was in 2014 when President Obama was in office. And if you remember, you know, the surge seemed to come out of nowhere and that border agents hadn't really dealt with anything on such a magnitude in the past. And there was a real mad dash to spring up these shelters that were basically soft-sided, um, you know, Know, tent cities to hold children in just because there was nowhere for them to go. Mm-hmm. And then that problem kind of repeated itself under President Trump, which um, 
he certainly wasn't anticipating. I think the prior administration took this approach where they thought if we are really aggressive, not just with policies, but with rhetoric, that alone will be enough to kind of scare people away from coming into the United States. They obviously also tried other measures like family separation to do the same thing, and it didn't work. So you saw in 2019 almost a million people being encountered at the border. So this is not a new phenomenon for border agents, but it is, again, overwhelming just because these numbers tend to fluctuate so dramatically over time that, you know, when the numbers go down, these emergency facilities end up getting closed. And then you've got to start all over again when they when they rise again. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just sort of to your point, you know, why is it happening again now? So this is always tricky. I mean, it it certainly makes sense that given the way that the Trump administration ended, which was that after years and years of trying to really cut back on the number of people who were able to cross the border by chiseling away at asylum and then really kind of really just, you know, sealing, um, sealing it shut with the coronavirus pandemic that allowed the administration to really seal the border um, in, in the most dramatic way it had it had been able to do during those four years. Um, it makes sense, right, that a new president comes in and people think that they might have more of an opportunity now to get in than they did yeah. in the past year, for example. Political changes certainly do influence border crossings, but so do things like the weather and so do things Mm -hmm. like a pandemic where, you know, Central America was very locked down in the early months of the pandemic um, with very strict regulations. So, you know, depending on where you were, you might get arrested if you were out on the street. You know, there were restrictions on travel within countries, not just across international borders there. So it was very, very difficult to move around. Those restrictions are also lifting. That is probably playing a role. But I think, you know, the problem is that there are large, large numbers of people who, who need to come to the United States who feel that they, you know, need safety and and um, protection. And, you know, I think the Biden administration is trying to address that by saying, let's send money to Central America. Let's try to stabilize the region um, while also perhaps updating our laws to address the circumstances better so that, you know, perhaps kids who need to come to the United States could uh, apply and come in a way that didn't require them to sort of risk their lives, you know, to make this journey like perhaps there is a visa that should be made available to them, um, you know, to make the situation a little bit easier and more orderly to to shift the asylum system to address, you know, the people who actually need that help. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned um, the talk from Biden's team about sort of long term conditions and goals uh, like dealing with climate catastrophe, other external factors in the Northern Triangle. How realistic is that as a long term project? Well, that's very difficult because any kind of, you know, international infusion of funds that's, you know, being sent toward addressing these massive and intractable issues, climate change, as you pointed out, you know, government corruption, um, just public safety in general. Um, these are efforts that have had some success over time, you know, during the Obama administration, um, even little um, smaller pilot programs that were carried out before President Trump decided to, you know, basically cut all American funding to Central America, having, you know, working with El Salvadoran police, for example, had some success in, in stabilizing the region. But of course, this is 
long-term work. And so, right. and, and the problem is that, you know, it's largely, it's led, it's it changes administration to administration. And so just by its very nature, it becomes very difficult to create lasting change in, in that way. I think, you know, President Biden knows that very well. He basically headed up the Obama administration's efforts to do just this work. And so I think he'll try to figure out a way to make these funds and make these efforts last. But, um, you know, these problems stretch back decades, as we know, they're inextricably linked with American foreign policy. And so they're going to take just a massive commitment, not just from the president, but I think also from Congress and kind of from the American people, perhaps to, to make them stick even beyond, you know, the next four years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they seem like uh, almost impossible goals at the, at the moment, given, you know, like the progression of immigration legislation in Congress, mm-hmm. um, historically speaking. And to the point that you were just making, I'm curious, um, you know, how does the Biden administration policy on immigration overall compare to previous administrations like the Obama-Biden one, for instance? I think that there was some reflection that Democrats had had um, during Trump and maybe after Trump as well that um, and Biden included that there were some mistakes or, or different ways that things could have gone during that administration. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest difference that you see now with with the Biden administration's approach to immigration is that it's much more focused on humanitarian messaging um, and much less focused on law enforcement, um, much less focused on reinforcing this link that's sort of constantly repeated in political uh, rhetoric, you know, creating this link between criminality and immigration, um, you know, and it's almost, it's frustrating for journalists like me who've just written countless times in stories. You know, there's all this research that shows people born outside the United States who live here, you know, tend to commit crimes at lower rates than American born Mm -hmm. citizens. And Mm -hmm. yet it's, it, it, has been, you know, the foundation for many restrictions um, going back throughout history, you know, from administrations, both Republican and Democrat. And so I think you see the Biden administration almost trying to kind of break that link and just focus less on criminality, which is not to say that, you know, people who commit crimes shouldn't go through the typical justice system, but that, you know, just challenging this notion that immigrants are somehow predisposed or, um, because that emphasis kind of it, it becomes embedded, you know, in the in the psyche of the society so that it, we sort of um, believe these things to be true, even when there's no foundation for them. And, and then and then that ends up being able to sort of justify these very, very harsh, you know, restrictions and policies, family separation, you know, forcing mm-hmm. people to remain in Mexico. I think, you know, it's it's sort of no coincidence that when you hear these ideas repeated over and over again, that, you know, these people coming into the United States are probably going to commit crime when they when they get here that, you know, you can sort of more easily justify in your mind this this harsh treatment, even though it's not backed up by Mm -hmm. by fact. We would be remiss not to bring this next part up, but um, we're talking to you at a moment in America where xenophobia, hate crimes, and propaganda against people of color has been on the rise, and yet miraculously, people still want to become U.S. citizens. So does that come up in your reporting and conversations with people you know, seeking to live here? Do you think that speaks to how bad things must be for them elsewhere to want to come to a place where violence and racism against them is, feels so increasingly likely? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, and it does it does come up in my reporting a lot. And the the reputation of the United States is just a very powerful thing. I've found that, you know, 
in countries from Guatemala to Romania. Um, it's a mythology. It's something that people grow up with um, that's that's passed down through generations. They absorb it um, on television, you know, yeah. in podcasts, on, on social media now more than ever. Um, people really hold on to this idea of the United States, um, sometimes because it's, it's their only hope. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I've had countless conversations with immigrants about, about what they actually experience when they get here. And, and then, you know, as, as we all know, and as we're all talking about a lot today, um, it's not just immigrants, but it's, you know, their children, it's their grandchildren um, who are often treated as if they're immigrants when, when they're not, when they're native born Americans. And Mm -hmm. so it's, um, it's a fundamental sort of complexity, fraughtness, contradiction that's built into so much of the reporting that I do. Um, I think that, you know, the pain of, of what people are experiencing right now today, um, it's felt across immigrant groups in the United States. And, and, you know, this feeling of like, should we actually be here? You know, that's very real. Um, but, but so is, um, so is what people are leaving behind, you know, the circumstances that lead people to leave their home countries. And, and so is that, that sense of hope that people hold on to very often, you know, for their kids, all, all these things are true. And it's, um, it's, it's complicated, but it's a decision, you know, to come to the United States is a decision that a lot of people feel like they have no other choice but to make. Yeah, definitely. And with how dangerous that journey is anyway, I mean, that seems really evident. Yeah. Um, well, Caitlin, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was Atlantic staff writer Caitlin Dickerson. By the way, a quick clarification on something Caitlin said. The 2014 surge was the biggest in history at the time, but then the surge of unaccompanied children in 2019 was even bigger. So that's the latest. Stay safe, and we'll be back after some ads. What a day is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She absolutely deserves the best. And that's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your auntie, even your granny, okay? Anyone who deserves flowers in your life mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be holiday specific. You get flowers, you're getting flowers, <laughs> everyone's getting flowers. <laughs> Go to books.com and use promo code WAD for 25% off. That is B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code WAD, books, promo code WAD. What a Day is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Plus, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. We love fast-growing trees here. I keep telling you that the many plants that I've gotten from these folks are yet hanging on. Um, And that's not because I have a green thumb, okay? 
This spring, fast-growing trees, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code WAD at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code WAD at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code WAD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Therapy is great for, you know, you know that thing that just is like sitting on your shoulder, you can't get over it, and you just sometimes need somebody to talk through it with? Therapy can be helpful for that, you all, okay? You got to get it off your chest, you know? And you can do that with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash WAD today to get 10% off your first month. That's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WAD. Let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. White supremacist propaganda spread at an alarmingly high rate last year. According to a new report from the Anti-Defamation League, there were over 5,000 cases of racist, anti-Semitic, anti-LGBTQ, and other hateful messages across physical media like posters, banners, flyers, and more. That is double the amount of cases that were reported in 2019, and these reports don't even begin to cover what can be found online. 2020 marked the highest level of white supremacist propaganda in at least a decade. The phenomenon is so widespread that cases were reported in every single state besides Hawaii. Texas, Washington, California, and New Jersey were reported to have some of the highest levels of propaganda. Printed hate is important to track because it helps bolster efforts to recruit people and spread fear to the groups they're attempting to target. In a letter to congressional leaders yesterday, the Movement for Black Lives said they do not support the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which passed in the House earlier this month. The movement, which represents 150 organizations across the country, argued that the bill fails to confront the roots of police violence and does not invest in the marginalized communities affected by it. If passed, the bill would ban chokeholds and qualified immunity, which protects officers from certain lawsuits. Though the movement said it agreed with ending qualified immunity, they urged leaders to instead support the BREATHE Act, which aims to change the justice system by getting rid of things like the Drug Enforcement Administration, mandatory minimums, life sentences, and by redirecting funds to underserved communities. In England, Uber is bravely stepping up and classifying its drivers as workers rather than freelancers, and all it took was six years of courts telling them they had to. (laughs) Under the company's new policy, drivers will receive vacation pay, access to a pension plan, and a guaranteed minimum wage during rides. The trade union that first challenged Uber's old model in England described the news as a historic win, but that doesn't mean the country has defeated the gig economy dragon. British Uber drivers still won't receive sick pay, parental leave, and other benefits. And to understand why that is, you should know that the worker category in England is something we don't really have in the U.S. It is a third category that receives more protections than freelancers, but fewer than employees. This is yet another difference between the U.K. office and the one we know and love. Um, One U.S.-based worker advocacy group said Uber's new model in England is like the one it adopted last year in California, in which the company hopes to extend to other states. From that organization's perspective, these models offer a Band-Aid to help Uber put off more comprehensive changes. Canada's youth are facing an even more pernicious threat than Meg and Cardi's song about living in a big, sexy Alice in Wonderland house. (laughs) A Netflix animated movie called Bigfoot Family that says oil can be bad for the environment. 
That's the argument being made by conservatives in Alberta, which is home to a large oil and gas industry. Bigfoot family follows Bigfoot and his fictional human wife and son as they try to stop a company from filling in Alaska Valley with oil. In a press conference last week, Alberta's premier, Jason Kinney, took square aim at the movie, describing it as, quote, designed to defame in the most vicious way possible in the impressionable minds of kids, the largest industry in the province. <laughs> Kinney is joined in his anti-Bigfoot efforts by the Canadian Energy Center, a pro-fossil fuel government agency, which organized an email campaign for parents that are concerned about how the movie will affect their children's natural love of oil. <laughs> of course, paying all of this attention to a relatively unknown movie has backfired, pushing Bigfoot family onto the top 10 viewed list on Netflix Canada. This is actually bad news for Bigfoot, who is famously very shy. Yeah, you better click on that fast before it disappears. It'll run away from you. Yeah, it might be a little blurry. And those are the headlines. <laughs> That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, fall in love with Zach Braff, and fix him, or whatever happens in Garden State. I frankly don't remember, and tell your friends to listen. And if you're into reading, and not just the script of Bigfoot Family 2, the tale of Bigfoot's <laughs> human wife, like me, What A Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Akila Hughes. I'm Gideon Resnick. And, and stay, stay green, Netflix, Netflix Canada. Canada. Yeah, you know, kids don't even know what oil is. <laughs> show them beautiful forests and, and leaves. They'll like that more. I guarantee you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Charlotte Landis. Sonia Tun is our assistant producer. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Katie Long, Akila Hughes, and me. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday, and french fries are a food group where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again ocean city maryland somewhere to smile about book your trip at oceocean.com